Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on the Debunking Economics podcast, imagine if shares had a use-by date. If you pass the shares issued by a company onto a secondary market, the clock starts ticking. What would that do to the valuation of shares? And why do we need to worry about it? Well, if you read Steve Keen's book, Debunking Economics, uh, he talks about the idea of Jubilee shares as a means of relating share price to the actual underlying value of the company that you've invested in. Steve is here to talk more about this. So first of all, Steve, I mean, don't shares reflect the value of a company? (laughs) (laughs) I always like to start with a joke. (laughs) I could leave it at that. They, they, They reflect the valuation the public is currently placing on the direction in which the share is going to go over time. And uh, this can lead to some shares being massively overvalued and others being massively undervalued compared to what they're actually going to return over that period of time. Um, Keynes made the wonderful comment about the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent, which, of course, is the lament of a, of a short seller we had talked about in the previous, uh, previous podcast. But um, it's the, the extent to which shares deviate from whatever you might actually call fundamental value, uh, which really are the, in, in that sense, it's what you expect in terms of a return over time from that share discounted by a rate of a rate of interest, the massive deviations from that level of valuation. And the main worry that I have about shares is not so much how will they be overvalued or undervalued. The price that they have does bugger all for the company uh, that is actually uh, standing behind the share because the vast majority of trades are not buying new shares of companies and therefore through the price to pay giving that company investment funds. They're going between different people who, who are gambling over which direction the share price is going to go in and doing it on, on a levered basis as well. Well, the company won at the beginning, of course, because it got the money right at the beginning when it uh, it first sold those shares. So does, so does it matter to the company what happens next? Is, I mean, it's a bit like looking at, uh, you know, how much money did Rembrandt make from all the resale of, uh, of his paintings, so long as he got a good fair price on his uh, on it, which he probably didn't on his on, on his first sale. Well, we're talking about Van Gogh here as well, of course, who did uh, died completely neglected, and now Van Goghs are worth a fortune. Yeah. Um, so it it really is a case of if you actually want the share market, just like if you want the art market to actually generate art, then you better finance artists rather than speculators on art, first and foremost. And the same thing applies with the share market. If you want the share market to actually be a place that raises equity capital, which is the, which is the, the background portrayal we have, then you have to do set it up in such a way that it actually generates most of that turnover for primary share issues rather than for people gambling over the share price of Still, I've got to chuck a little reference in here. I've got a, I've got a wonderful family and a very, uh, uh, very lovable and earnest uh, brother-in-law who was at one stage explaining to me when he was establishing uh, his self-managed uh, superannuation fund that they were going to put a lot of their money to Cochlear shares, Cochlear being an Australian company that invented bionic ears because they really appreciate the technology. And I didn't have the heart to tell him the shares he was buying were going to provide zero rev- uh, revenue to Cochlear. Mm. That's what he actually thought he was doing by buying the shares. Yeah. Now I say, that's a good idea. Let's make that the main thing that people do when they go to the share market. 
Right. So invest in the company rather than uh, having a, a, a secondary market. Let's so let's yeah. let's look at that in a second though. But just I just want to examine whether we ha- whether we have a significant problem because uh, obviously we've we've got the issue that. Uh, once the, the share's been sold, it, it it doesn't, as you say, the money doesn't go to the company. Uh, it becomes rife for speculation. That can create bubbles, and that's a concern. But I mean that uh, that gets knocked down to size, doesn't it? I mean we we have crashes. The stock market is up and down. If you look at the uh, the price to earnings ratio, and there's there's other met- metrics, but the the PE ratio, in other words, how much you pay for a share and how it is related to how much the company earns. That's one metric that's used to try and keep investments in in check and to make sure we're not overpaying. Um, over the best part of 100 years, the let's look at the S&P 500, the price-to-earnings ratio has been below 20 for the best part of that uh, that 100 years. Now, there's been crazy peaks like the dot-com boom, and, um, no. and, and in 2009, I think because earnings dropped and people assumed that they would come back, so the price-to-earnings ratio shot up. It's not like we're seeing a continued rise in the price-to-earnings ratio. So that surely shows that there is some sort of linkage between the price that's being paid for shares and the value of the company that they're linked to. Yeah, but the, the, that that is massively out of out of whack over time. And like at the moment, if you look at the average valuation that shares have using probably the best, the most accurate measure of that, which is Schiller's price to earnings ratio, where he he takes the current price level and divides uh, the, that into the earnings. Oh, they divide that by the earnings over the previous 10 years, which gives you a, a stabilising uh, factor on the actual earnings. That index uh, has been, I think, of the average value of about, uh, I think, about 14 to 18 over the last century. Uh, it peaked at 40, 40 plus in the stock market bubble in 2000. It's currently running at about 30. So in that sense, you can say that over the long term, mm. uh, by compared to the long term returns, share prices are currently twice what they should be. And yet what's ha- actually happening is that becomes the mechanism by which we borrow money into existence, one of the mechanisms we do, which actually generates level of econo- economic activity. So we're basing our economic activity on the continuation of the unsustainable. And this is the sort of insane thing that I would like to bring an end to. Well, and you talk in your book about the greater fool principle. In other words, uh, you know, we all rush to buy shares that, you know, perhaps because they're hot right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we just follow the uh, fo- we follow the crowd. That uh, Does that apply to everybody? I'm, I'm imagining that would happen for the mum and dad investor. But the seasoned investor, I'm wondering, you know, if you've, if you've lost a lot because you made a bad call, you're not going to keep on doing that. So can you keep being a greater fool? Oh, yes. And that's one of the jobs of an institutional investor to continue being the greater fool. And this is, uh, again, one of the reasons why the total, the the usual mainstream economics is such nonsense about the actual behavior of the stock market. Uh, There's the best arguments about this were actually made in a very brief sense by Keynes, both in the general theory in Chapter 12 and also uh, in some of his 1937 papers. And he explained that institutional investors are forced by the conventions of the finance sector to go with the crowd, to do what the crowd believes. Uh, he said, if you don't buy the popular share at the time, then you are derided. You are you are likely to lose your job in the next three-month review. Mm. So the pressures of the stock market actually make you buy and follow the herd. So rather than sp- uh, professional investors uh, actually looking for value and giving you a valuation return to actually amplify this underlying instability in the market. And the same arguments were made in a less less eloquent way, but more technically by recently deceased 
rev- a maverick finance economist called Bob Hagen. And Hagen developed what he called the inefficient markets hypothesis. And a major part of his argument was that the conventions of, the, of, of, of professional investors, superannuation funds, pension funds, insurance companies, et cetera, et cetera, banks themselves, uh, with their quarterly reporting pressure, they push people into having to have a, a portfolio that's not too different to the index. So whatever the index is, and the index itself reflects the weighting of different shares in the marketplace, that's what they're forced to buy. And he said that therefore means that there's a profit opportunity for people who are not institutional investors to do the opposite. And the basic thing he says is don't buy shares with a high book to mark, uh, uh, with, with a with a, a, a with a high, uh, sorry, buy, buy shares with a low book to market valuation. So if you find the, Sorry, so there's a high book-to-market valuation. You find, that you find the book value of a share in terms of what the assets of the company are worth to, say, come out to, to $10, and the valuation of the share, um, you, know, you, could see, you could sell all, all the stuff, you could sell the current capital of the firm for $10 per share, and you find it's got a, a valuation on the stock market of $5 per share. So that's the sort of share you buy. But if you find you've sold everything it's got now for 10 and, and, the, and the actual share market rises to 30 or 40, don't touch it. Mm. But those, the ones that have got the high market, the, the low book to market ratio, the high market to book, I keep, it's one of these things I keep on stuffing <laughs> up the actual terms myself with, I'm afraid to say. But if the market puts a much higher valuation on a company than you could actually sell its assets for right now, yeah. that is most likely a share which is going to be identified as a growth stock. And that's what people that the 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 market pours into those stocks because those are the ones that are currently rising because they've risen from what they've you know they've obviously started from a zero at some stage effectively book value and market value now they've got a market value far higher and the conventional wisdom extrapolates that into the future now Hagen's point was that these firms are going to fail to have reached the expectations in the vast majority of cases so the returns they're going to get are not the ones people are extrapolating into the market market and therefore if you're a, a standard investor you know if you're investing your own funds you can profit by not buying those shares by buying the ones they neglect and you'll find shares which have got a very high book to market ratio he said buy those instead and that's fundamentally the technique that uh, warren buffett has been using very successfully for the last half century which anyone could do of course i mean it all gets down to like anything doesn't it you make money from the more research you do so the more clued up you are rather than following the herd then the better you're going to do i mean that that makes sense that's just a, an argument for why you should uh, research where you're putting your money, irrespective of uh, of where you're putting it. But let's let's look at this. Yep. Let's look at this this concern that prices don't reflect value. Uh, and 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 you're saying that is that part of that is because people are borrowing to invest, and that's adding to the to the debt burden, but not in a particularly productive way. And that obviously applies equally to other assets, particularly houses which we've spoken about, and we know that that has inflated house prices. So presumably it is inflating uh, share prices in the same way. Doesn't that mean then, if you did anything to stop that, if you if you said, well, okay, we don't like people borrowing to, to invest, uh, if you did that to housing, we know house prices would come crashing down. So if you did it to the stock market, even for that initial sale, if I'm a company that's trying to raise money uh, on, on the share market, uh, and people can't uh, uh, borrow money to make that investment. Aren't I going to find it a lot harder to raise the capital to get my business well, off is, the ground? This is 
one of the curlies that maybe talk about Jubilee shares in the way that I have rather than just saying let's ban borrowing money to buy shares because again like when I proposed the idea of a, of a modern debt Jubilee of a debt Jubilee in general writing off debt one of the first responses I got was what about moral hazard what 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 that penalizes people who themselves didn't gamble and I said you're dead right we have to mm. find a mechanism that means that people who didn't speculate also benefit from this so that's why I said a modern debt Jubilee use the government's capacity to create money to inject money per capita uh, into people's accounts regardless whether you borrowed money or not so in that sense savers get a cash injection whereas debtors get a debt reduction there's no there's no bias in favor of debtors over savers in that situation so you need a similar thing for shares is and the thing is, I don't mind if people borrow money to buy shares in a company because they believe the company is going to be a success and the funds actually go to the company. Mm. So the idea of a Jubilee share uh, is a share which, when you buy it in an initial public offering or a rights-off or at any stage that a share company actually uses the shares, then it behaves exactly like a current share does right now. You get the dividend payments, you get the right to vote. Uh, and the share lasts forever. But the idea is uh, after a number of sales of the share, uh, then it becomes a jubilee share. And when it comes a jubilee share, it's got 50 years before it terminates. Right. So it can be, what, this is a modification of an idea from my system dynamics friend in Norway, Strun Andresen, which he, he talked about what he called voting bonds. So the idea is to have shares, you, you buy a share in initial public offering or a rights offer, uh, then that is actually going money that goes to the company. You can do whatever you like. You can borrow money to buy it. You can you buy the share, can hang on forever. You can sell it. But once it's been sold a set number of times, then after, say, let's say after a, a dozen sales, which is enough time for price discovery, uh, then bang, it's a Jubilee share. And from that point on, it's only going to give you, you, you know its terminal value after 50 years is zero. And the idea is to remove the belief that the share price is going to reach infinity, which is the current fact that it drags people in to pay ridiculous prices on the secondary market. Right. So that share would then, because that share obviously is going to decline over that 50, it would be, be worthless the day before it expires. So uh, the only reason you'd be buying that share from anybody on the secondary market is because presumably because you're going to get very high dividends but i mean it's it's going to that share price is going to gradually slide so that would have to be differentially priced to those shares that have not been sold yeah you'd have, you'd have a you'd have a, a sense in the market where the, where initial public offerings would be something which would be sought after because they're the only ones which would have that if you bought the share and hung on it forever they're the only one with the potential for you know inf- infinite price appreciation over time so i'm happy to find a way to encourage people to provide capital for new ventures uh, which that would what the share market would do. Because at the moment, when you look at the aggregate level of share creation versus share cancellation, frankly, the stock market is now a place where equity capital is destroyed rather than created because most of the firms, particularly in the finance sector, what they're doing with the money they get from the public is paying is buying their own shares and cancelling them. There's probably a net... I haven't actually taken a look at the figures for some time, but I would not be amazed to see at the moment we have net negative equity creation by the share market. Now, that, that's not a healthy system. Right. But is anybody going to buy these shares? I mean, beyond. So you're saying you can you'd allow a few to change hands a few times, as you say, for price discovery. And also you need to allow for the fact that, you know, might be Mm. someone dies. They want to pass it on to a family member and all that sort of stuff. But um, But yeah, but you can change hands a few times after that. Why would anyone be buying it? So you can say it's 50 years. You might as well say it's 20 years or 100 years. No one's going to be interested in buying it, are they? Well, it's partly if you make it, say, 50 years, that's like an annuity. If you actually 
uh, imagine somebody saying they want to buy shares as an investment for a cash stream, then you want to buy, you know, the, 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 the blue chip company and expect a dividend return from the blue chip over time. And, and this would be uh, partly a, a way of meaning that you would buy, rather than buying bonds, you'd, you would you give a lower yield. You could buy shares to get a higher yield, but you know that just like a bond's going to terminate in life after a set number of years, there would happen to the shares as well and it's it's nothing unusual the by far the biggest market uh, in terms of financial speculation on the planet is the bond market not the share market yeah the share market's the exception not the rule it gets all the attention but it's not the biggest one by far but i'm saying to some extent the fact that bonds terminate which people have been coping with for 500 years now uh, is something we could actually extend to the stock market as well and just res retain this idea of infinitely live shares to so people who buy a share in an IPO and don't sell it. And then that way, you're saying, if you actually write about Tesla, for example, uh, then that initial purchase is going to be extremely beneficial to you over time. But if you're also right about Tesla and it becomes a long-term cash cow, then you can also buy Jubilee shares in it and get a reasonable dividend return over time as well. You're still gambling on that return actually occurring. Right. But you're not, you, the greater fool idea that's going to be worth an infinite price, people are going to say, I'll pull my leg, it's going to expire in 49 years. Right. But the, but the, the difference is with a bond, you, you're getting money back at the end. There's a terminal value on that bond. So you're getting the dividend plus you're getting money back. In that's also possible with the share. The terminal value could be the value it was purchased for in the first instance. So you provide this is a bit, in mathematical terms, this is what's called an ordinary differential equation and a partial differential equation. A partial differential equation has boundary conditions, an initial value and a final value normally. Uh, this Bonds have got that. Shares do not. Now, partly the volatility of shares comes out of the fact that it's like a whip. You're holding one end to the other area is loose and potentially infinitely long. Uh, you can whip that up and down, whip that down. Any valuation is possible. With a bond, because it has a terminal value as well as an initial value, you simply can't get that level of overvaluation so the idea is to try to restrict the range the share market would move through by removing that potential for inf effectively infinite overvaluation so a terminal value equivalent to its initial value get your money back from the company uh, after the 50 years after it becomes a jubilee share that that removes that potential for the massive overvaluation we see in the stock market now which themselves of course feed back into the real economy causing a further overvaluation and speculative bubbles capitalism is unstable enough without the stock market adding to it in other words right but bond you mentioned bonds because it's an interesting parallel isn't it because in effect you are we're talking about in effect turning a share into a bond um, is the easiest way to look at this bonds have a have a terminal mm. fixed fixed terminal price they've got a a yield which is set over over you know over the period of the bond but of course they get bought and sold and the price goes up and down um you know through speculation isn't that the same problem uh, yeah but it's not it never bonds never get as overvalued as shares do yeah. and there's massive amounts of trading in them possibly potentially because people doing this stuff are professional traders and they're aware of the dangers of shares bonds are slightly safer on that front um but the idea here would be that like a bond gives you a first claim on a company a share does not you're a residual claim holder rather than a first claim holder but the fundamental I I idea of that the share should have a terminal value and a terminal span i think is quite a, a simple and sensible change uh, you simply you want to with the reason that it doesn't actually like with with the, with the bond you're getting a stated 
valuation on the on the bond. You're getting a three percent yield on a price of a thousand 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 dollars, that sort of thing. With your board of share, you're getting no promise about the dividend return. So that is the um, the, the the gamble you're taking, and therefore you could expect a higher return on shares than you get on bonds. Uh, but the the reason we get the greater full valuations of this argument, oh, it's going to go to infinity in the future, and mm. all people are buying and selling and it's a huge churn i want to get rid of that churn you you want a level of churn that gives you the potential for price discovery and you want also and this is a very important point that i'm taking largely from bill janeway who uh, is one of the sponsors of iNet and is a very successful venture capitalist who actually has a phd in economics from cambridge university under nikki caldor so he knows he's not orthodox economics and bill argues that the potential for a massive gain is what encourages people to be entrepreneurs in the first place. And he said to have innovation, you need to have people who can afford to waste money. Now, he said two groups can afford to waste money. This is when the government can waste it because it has the capacity to create yeah. money anyway. That's Mariana Mazzucuto's case about the entrepreneurial state. But venture capitalists can as well. They can waste money on five ventures because the sixth they expect to make a fortune. Now, you've got to have it possible to make a fortune so that that potential for the share to rise dramatically in price has to be there. Uh, but you want that for people to take out IPOs. You don't want it for people who are gambling on the secondary market. Right. Uh, good point. So uh, it is quite a big shift, though, isn't it, in the way share markets operate? I mean, is, is there a way that something like this could be introduced in part so we can at least see the, the impact it has? Or is it uh, one of those grand ideas that unless it's introduced everywhere <laughs> everywhere for everyone, uh, it's not going to work at all? Uh, I think it's the sort of thing you could trial. You could actually imagine a company issuing shares which are described as, as Jubilee shares and see how it goes. Um, the trouble is... That, you know, again, because there are other shares to which you can make a fortune, the odds are, no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be taken up. I think the only thing that can happen is after a stock market crash. And that's one reason I proposed this stuff back in the uh, in the 2000s, because it made sense to say, well, when 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 the detritus is everywhere and everybody's blown their money and you think, oh, God, that was a stupid idea to get involved in the stock market, then at that particular point you might be able to say well we're now going to in this particular country we're going to redefine shares as jubilee shares and see what happens because the thing you do want the stock market to do the reason we actually tolerate the bloody place and talk about it so much as well is we believe it's part of what's generating the capital that the investment capital that will enable new technologies and new industries to be created now if it's not actually doing that why do we pay it so much bloody attention it's because of the greater fool effect so i want to get rid of the greater fool effect and encourage it to to do what it's supposed to do but of course I'm, I'm quite happy to admit the odds of that are fairly slim uh, unless we find ourselves in a period of longer long run stagnation and low price rise for shares in the first instance now the odds are given the valuation we're currently seeing on the uh, the Schiller price index and the extent to which shares have been driven up in price by the uh, machinations of central banks Thanks for the quantitative easing. Maybe that day is getting close. All right. Well, we've got the answer when it does. Uh, good to talk again, Steve. We'll catch you again very soon. Okay, mate. Bye. Interesting thought, isn't it? And look, next time, has the basics of economics missed out a vital function? Energy. Steve has mentioned this a few times in recent podcasts, and we'll explore that idea a bit more. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you next time on the Debunking Economics podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.